Have you had the opportunity to take financial education courses or training during school, at the workplace, one-on-one, or in another setting? It's more important than ever to be financially aware. Fortunately, there are so many opportunities to learn about personal finance, whether it's in school, at work, or even on your own. Taking advantage of opportunities that feel right for you can set yourself up for a future financial success, whatever that looks like for you. This month, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the National Endowment for Financial Education. NEFI champions effective financial education. They are an independent, centralizing voice providing leadership, research, and collaboration to advance financial well-being. NEFI envisions a nation where everyone has the knowledge, confidence, and opportunity to live their best financial life. To honor this special event, I've invited some staff members from NEFI to join me to discuss some of the most recent topics and statistics from polls they have conducted that are impacting the personal finance space. We also talk about how financial literacy helped shape their personal lives both the good times as well as tough moments. I hope you enjoy part two in our five-part series of NEFI in November with our special guest, Managing Director of Insights at NEFI, Amy Marty Conrad, where we discuss a recent article regarding how individuals with financial education opportunities chose to take part in them in overwhelming numbers. To learn more about the article and the poll, Financial Education Access, visit nefi.org or click on the link in the show notes. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask, where we explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. Amy Marty Conrad, MS, AFC, the NEFI Institute's Managing Director of Insights, focuses on making scholarly research useful for the work of practitioners, advocates, policymakers, and other audiences. She uses her experience to create a meaningful connection between thought leadership and practical application, especially by driving systemic change and collective impact in the field. Amy joined NEFI in 2012, overseeing the K-12 college and adult education programs, including the high school financial planning program, the Cash Course Program, and the Smart About Money Program, developing strategies to help educators and partners nationwide build more effective financial education classes and programs. She loves exploring Colorado with her husband and daughter. Amy, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here. All right. So I've got to ask, you've got a master's in marketing, you've got a bachelor's in journalism, then you got into finance. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey getting to Managing Director of Insights at NEFI? Sure. It was a series of very happy, right place, right time types of things. I had a personal interest in finance, personal finance throughout my life. And actually, when I was in journalism school, I also took classes at the business college thinking maybe I'll be a business writer, worked a little bit in PR during that time, corporate communications. But I always was interested and invested in helping people navigate their lives more easily with more information. And journalism is one of those ways, you know, telling stories or revealing information, giving people tools. I see journalism as a tool of education in some ways. But when I was finished with journalism school, you know, I thought maybe corporate communications was the path I wanted to take. And that took me to graduate school in marketing. But while I was a graduate student, I actually started at NEFI as an intern. Oh, I was working in the corporate communications department with our consumer education tool, Smart About Money. And running social media there, writing a little bit, personal finance articles. And then as I was finishing my graduate education, 
Luckily, there was a new opening, a new role to support our college financial education program cash course. So from all the writing I had done, from the multimedia work that I was doing as a journalist and as a communications person, I was sort of a right place, right time to support this online education program. So I was so happy to be there because I've always wanted to work somewhere with a mission, a strong mission. And NIFI is definitely one of those places. And so over those years, I've been using my fact-finding, my curiosity, wanting to give people information or tell them stories that they may not already have. And it's escalated over the years into different types of roles. So I was on our programs, educational programs, for a really long time. And then when NIFI transitioned away from providing curriculum, I made the transition as well to work more on our thought leadership side. Right now, my work is in research to practice, convenings, partnerships. I do a little bit of everything, but it's all in service of the mission of championing effective financial education and helping people get the information that they need to live their best financial lives. That's so awesome. I mean, I've had a couple insights, but nobody's ever made me a director. Nobody's there like, keep your insights to yourself, Bob. (laughs) It could be aspirational, but we all need to strive. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, was there pressure? I'm assuming because you work at NEFI, every single person there has handed their financial situation perfectly since birth. Oh, well, (laughs) that would be nice. We are all humans, actually. No, definitely not the case. Not the case for me. I was pretty fortunate. I think I had some good financial behaviors modeled to me as a kid, especially around saving. My parents are both savers. They're small business owners. So, you know, closely looking at their finances was always part of growing up. I remember being a kid going to like JCPenney with my mom and wanting some like, I don't know, headband or something and her going, well, you know, you already have a couple headbands. Do you need another headband? So those kind of frugalities and being smart with our shopping was something that was modeled to me as a kid. But I would not say that I'm perfect when it comes to my own finances. (laughs) When people talk about financial well-being, because maybe not everybody's trying to get to a billion dollars, but if we could get to financial well-being, seems like a pretty good place to get. What does that mean to you? I like some of the ways we've talked about it as a field, a financial education field. To me, financial well-being is, do I feel good and satisfied with where I'm at with my money? And that doesn't mean wealthy, doesn't mean rich. It doesn't have to mean one particular thing, but do I feel like secure and satisfied, knowledgeable, confident in my present situation? And then do I feel like some hope or like I'm on the right track for the future? That's what that means to me. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe an absence of extreme anxiety. (laughs) Perhaps, or confidence that the anxiety will pass and you know how to navigate it. You have people to turn to or sources to turn to for help, whether that's informational help or money help, credit lines or whatever it may be. So yeah, I think it's a state you get to define for yourself, which is really nice. There's not one way to be financially well. Absolutely. And I think the lesson that was sort of a bummer and then sort of great to me is that it's an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing state of being because things change and we learn more or we get caught up in our emotions and we sort of take ourselves out for a moment. So it's not like a one and done where, oh, great, I've learned all these skills, never have to employ them again. It's a constant engagement of reassessing finances, having difficult conversations, adjusting, pivoting, whatever that might be. Absolutely. I think health is a really good parallel. You always have a state of health. Right. You don't not have health. It can look different and your healthiest self is going to look different from someone else's healthiest self. And you get to kind of define what that is. And you have different tools to manage it through different life stages. And personal finance and financial well-being is largely the same in that way. Yeah. Now, when I was at FinCon and I talked to Dr. Billy, we were talking about 
Nephi had just done some polling and over 80% of people really thought that mandatory financial literacy was a great thing. And you've got some numbers here and in the polls that we're looking at, it's about not quite half, but almost half, 45% of adults have had the opportunity to be exposed to financial education courses and trainings. Did that surprise you? Does that seem like a high number, a low number? What do we take from that data? I'm happy to see that number. You'd love it to be higher, of course. It would be great if this was a repeat poll that we had done a few years pre-pandemic or pre-2008, because I do think that access to personal finance has changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. So I was a little surprised it was actually as high as half, but glad to see that. And we still have room to grow for sure. And now some people get financial literacy courses because they voluntarily decided to seek them out. Other people might have had to be mandated to take them, like we're talking about for schools. 16% had the opportunity to do it through employer-based courses. Is this maybe a place where employers can start to offer a service to actually empower and create healthier employees? It's possible. You know, I think this is seen as a benefit to some workplaces and employers to invest in their people, to give people a benefit that they don't have already, or to maybe relieve some stress and keep folks feeling more secure in their personal situation and their employment situation, hopefully retain people. It's really challenging, I think, to reach adults with any type of education. And so seeing workplaces as a potential avenue for this really critical information is great. And some of it is about who decides to opt in and who decides to opt out and how can we tip it towards more people seeing financial education as a thing that can benefit them and serving people really well. So if you've got a small slice of your workforce who chooses to do whatever financial education you've presented, who's saying no? What would make them say yes? What would make them want to show up? What would make it more relevant and useful to them? I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, as you were just talking about that, I'm thinking, okay, management's probably going to opt in because they're not hourly. It's not going to affect their pay. Mm -hmm. If I'm hourly, am I going to get paid for this? Or is it supposed to be after hours? Then maybe I don't want to do it because I feel like my time resources are limited. Right. So there's a lot of different ways. So in the data, there was 66% of Hispanic adults more likely to not have access to financial education compared to non-Hispanic white and non-Hispanic Blacks. Does this data then help you to say, how do we bring in this community? Is that hopefully the point of some of this data to be able to say, how do we bring a wider welcome? And what do we need to do to these communities to invite them in? I think it's one indicator. And I think in this data, we see trends outside of the financial education space that exist within it as well. So I don't want to just make guesses on why these folks aren't well represented in this data in terms of access. But it's very striking to see that, you know, present in numbers that we're not reaching. Financial education isn't reaching a big chunk of Americans. So Nephi's a huge champion of culturally competent education, relevant education, timely, meeting people where they are. And I think this shows a gap in meeting people where they are, for sure. Yeah. So... In a prior conversation, and Nifi did the data on LGBTQ plus community and people not feeling represented, like the financial advisors are all straight white males, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe not feeling represented or seeing somebody that looks like them or feeling like they're actually being taken care of, that there might be a named or unnamed bias against them. Do you think that that may be the case in other communities as well? Like, not that we can generalize. 
But when we don't see somebody like ourselves or we don't see that being catered to, maybe we feel like, oh, well, that's just not for me. Or maybe that's just not possible. I think trust is a big part of it. Trusting that the person that is either delivering the education or the counseling or coaching gets the nuance of your situation and is willing to listen. I think that's a huge thing. There's a lot of vulnerability in talking about finances. I think that's part of why you do these conversations. It's not just numbers. It's not just math. It's psychology. It's culture. It's a lot of like mental maps that you've built throughout your whole life. And those things, it's hard to represent that in a poll. Right. But people are coming to the table with really complicated things. And even the desire to make a change in your financial situation or strive for a different type of financial well-being, you have to have trust that the folks that are like helping you get there have your best interests in mind. They're going to understand where you're coming from, the limitations of your financial situation or your family situation, the systemic barriers you may face. And all of that's really hard to just unpack all of that. But I think that's where trust and a good community of advisors really makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, because not only do you need to trust them, if I'm on limited funds and I hand you over the excess, which may not be that much of my limited funds for you or somebody to go invest, and then I lose it, not only have I lost trust, but I've lost my money or I've lost my investments. Right. And there's just real cost there. It's not just you hurt my feelings or I don't trust you anymore. You also took my money that has no consequence to the other person. Yeah. Slim margins are meaningful margins. And education is not going to suddenly give someone a bunch of resources they don't have. It's not going to increase your pay overnight instantaneously if you need to make more money. So yeah, trusting that there's something you can do with information is a big part of it too. When you're talking about these different things and we have this different information and people start to get the tools, then having that conversation to ask for a raise or to maybe start to understand that the system is working against you. So you might be crazy making because you're like, I keep doing this. But if I don't know the system's not favoring me, I might take it personal. So where can someone go to start to unpack some of that stuff? Learning to ask for a raise, learning to recognize where there are allies and people that will advocate for them. Are there some places that people can go? I think community is a big one. I think in every neighborhood and every social community, there are mentors or models to look to. And if you see someone in your extended network that you feel like has really got it, you know, that could be a good person to start with. And that's not saying that those folks have all of the perfect information, but it's a good starting point. You know, it's direction setting, it's envisioning the next steps for whatever action you're trying to take. And from there, seeking out sources of information that are well-researched, embedded, and created. It's challenging. I think there's just a huge surplus of financial information and advice out there, especially online. So knowing where to go is a challenge. Often Nefi points people to like government sources or their local credit union or bank or their like a community financial institution. But I think starting with folks you trust is a natural thing. A lot of people do it already. And then from there, trying to seek out additional education or information that's rooted in something really high quality. So considering the source, considering the motivation behind that resource is really important. So, you know, if I'm reading this really great article, should I consider, are they trying to sell me anything? Or are they trying to push me in one direction over another? It does take a lot of skill, I think, or a lot of practice, at least, to 
seek those out and notice the patterns. And when you start to see patterns of information or advice, I think that's a helpful thing to nudge you in the right direction. Yeah, it's finding that balance between being paranoid and cautiously skeptical or cautiously optimistic. You don't want to like, what do you, what do you, what's going on? But like, hmm, let me measure this. Are they, Yeah. because even with a financial advisor, they could be fee-based, they could be commission-based. And if they're commission-based and they're telling you to buy and sell stock every day, it may be because they're actually just trying to rack up a commission. And so that trust piece does feel really, really important. Yeah. When you've been looking at this data and from the poll results that you did, that Nefi did this year, what statistics stood out the most to you and why? One of the things I thought was interesting was when you dig down into people who, of all the people who said, that, that half of people who said, yes, I had the opportunity to take a financial education class or engage in some kind of education and how many of them decided to, and that's really reassuring. But when you dig into like where those avenues are, there's a big difference between your high school or your college. Those numbers are really high. People who have the opportunity at an educational institution, even through their employer, people take that up at a really high level. But when it's presented by their financial institutions, it's a lot lower. You know, if my bank's doing a workshop on mortgages, I'm way less likely to go to that than I would be if my employer was doing something. And I think that goes back to like, where do we place our trust or what communities do we see ourselves reflected in? that we want to go and then pursue more information or advice from those places. That's so interesting you say that because I know one of the major banks is working to do some community no interest loans or low interest, no down payment loans Mm -hmm. in marginalized communities. And the skeptic in me says, how are they going to pay for this? Is this really a bait and switch? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the agenda? There's that slightly paranoid part of me that goes, what's the agenda here? Is this really good works? If Nefi says, here's what we think and here's what we can offer, well, I'm more trusting it's a nonprofit, right? Uh But a major bank, I'm thinking, what's the unconscious marketing thing they're trying to get me to do? And do I trust it? It's so important. That trust piece is so important. And I think there's a lot of too good to be true sounding financial opportunities. And it's hard to shake that feeling. Even when you do your research or you're feeling confident about something, if it feels really good or sounds too good to be true, there's still that little red flag in your head that's like, oh my gosh, what if I mess up? Because the stakes can be really high. You know, if you get into a mortgage or something you can't afford, that's really high stakes, which I realize is not constructive. It's just, you know, illustrating what people go through when they're making these big choices, even small choices, but definitely big ones. So part of that, I think, is knowledge of that history or knowledge of that environment so you can operate with caution. And again, I think there are a lot of really strong local community institutions that do this well, and they know the folks that they're working with. If your local credit union or something is offering a workshop, you may react to that differently than if a big international bank is doing it. Yeah. How much do you think banks, financial institutions, brokerage houses, financial advisors are starting to factor in the other components, the other layers? I might have had a financial trauma when I was 18, or my family might have. Or my parents experienced something that was traumatic, or all of a sudden we had a huge influx of cash and we didn't know how to handle it. Those are all pieces of the puzzle too. Not only do I have to get the bank to give me the mortgage, but if I have a belief that nobody ever pays off the mortgage or at some point they're going to foreclose, there might be some self-fulfilling prophecies. Do you think banks and financial institutions are starting to address a little bit more of the history or the emotions? or the layers that make it a little bit more complicated? You would hope so. 
I don't work in the financial products space directly. What I see is, at least for the way they market their tools to people, it seems like there's a building awareness. Where I really see a lot of awareness is in the financial planning and coaching space. I think financial planners have grown a lot in, and probably this has been the case a long time, but seeing the humanity and some of those additional factors beyond just how you look on a balance sheet, you would hope that the entire financial system wants to build towards something that works for everybody. And maybe that's optimistic. That's the future I would like to see where good products are available to people given whatever situation they're in and you can actually productively move forward in the direction you want to. You're not limited by geography or race or gender identity or anything like that. So that's the future I would like to imagine and strive for. Whether we're getting there or not, at least we're starting to have the conversations. Absolutely. And then sort of along those lines, though, we can learn so much through the education stuff, but these other pieces and the emotions that come up from these experience are a big part of it. From my perspective, uh-huh. I'm not a doctor. How would you describe your emotional relationship with money? Just personally, like now that you've been at Nefi, you've got a lot of tools. It's all dialed in. How is it for you? I have come to find I'm a person who really values security, financial security and other types of security. But, you know, I feel good when I'm saving a lot of money. I'm even okay with taking some risk in investing, although it's an area I'm not as well-versed. But I find that I'm much more aware of my risk awareness than I used to be. I just thought this is how everybody is. But there's people with vastly different levels of like willingness to accept financial risk. And I'm a pretty risk-averse kind of person. I don't know if that's indicative of people my age. I'm an older millennial, as you might say. So we've been through some stuff with the economy. But I know that I have blind spots and all the things I know about personal finance given my career, and I still have these blind spots, it reminds me this field exists for a reason. If me working at NEFI, I feel intimidated by some of the decisions I have to make or the information I'm trying to seek out about planning for my future. I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for people who haven't been working in this space, how challenging and what an uphill climb it's got to be. So yeah, I know I don't know everything. And the fact that I still have so much to learn is like, well, we have a lot of work to do in this financial education field, don't we? We do. And I think it's so important for people that are listening to realize, like, we're all still learning. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us have all of the answers. Warren Buffett does not have all of the answers, (laughs) right? We're all Uh still figuring it out. And I even now, I'll find a blind spot. I'll, oh my God, I didn't realize I had this strong belief that I'm still operating from. Uh Ah, Do I want to let that go? Right? Because sometimes we don't. Because I'm like, I'm really comfortable with that belief, even if it doesn't serve me. So, It's great to hear you say that for all of us. It's a journey and new information comes, financial situations change. Yeah. And what I like about education generally, it's a mindset, it's a tool, it's navigating new scenarios all the time. I think part of the point of education is like teaching you to critically evaluate your situation, your landscape all the time to know how to seek out information when you need it. That's a skill that's going to live with folks If they're learning how like a credit score is made up, that's like a thing you can put in a box. But when you're learning how to like assess new information or how to find trusted sources or how to reach the next step of a goal, those are all skills. And that's all knowledge that you can take with you into new situations. So I do feel like I have confidence in myself to like navigate new problems given all the financial education I've had. And that's great. Building that kind of confidence, it really is a lifelong thing. And so even as the financial marketplace gets more complex or we enter new life stages, Having the intrinsic thing of confidence in yourself and the efficacy to seek out new information or help, that's huge. It's going to benefit me, but it's going to benefit individuals who have that for a long time. Yeah, 
that's so awesome. And it's not always fun. No. And it's not always pleasant to self-evaluate. Sure. And it's great information to keep us moving forward. So I so appreciate that. Amy, we are at the Fast Five. And this month, Fast Five is brought to you by NEFI, the amazing National Endowment for Financial Education. We love NEFI, NEFI in November. So Amy, these are going to just be fast and down and dirty. We'll just see where we go. All right? Okay, sure. Are there any negative financial habits that your daughter has picked up from you? (laughs) Oh, she is a blind spot. I see something at the dollar store and I want it. Man, it's hard to say no. So I do spoil her. And I have to slow myself down because I'm like, I don't want you to think every time you go to Target, you need to get like new Play-Doh or whatever. Even when it's inexpensive, that's not a good habit. So I'm trying to be aware of that kind of thing. I need it. I need <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Mama, can I get this cute thing? Of course you can. You can have anything you want. Yeah. But I can't retire. So no, <laughs> I buy too much Play-Doh. That's where all my money is vested in Play-Doh. That's awesome. What's one thing looking back that you're grateful that you didn't have the money for when you were a teenager? Oh, gosh. I didn't go on a lot of trips as a teenager. I don't know. I didn't get into a lot of trouble. Maybe that's just the best way to say. Like, I didn't have too much money to get into trouble. There you go. <laughs> However you want to define that. I feel like I, I was had just the right of money to have fun, but not so much you could get into trouble. No. Perfect. Perfect. Are there any financial issues that you and your husband have a differing point of view on? Hmm. I think investing in property is one thing. Like that's a thing my family has done. My dad invested in some real estate when he was younger and his family, that's not as much a thing. We don't necessarily disagree on it, but it's like different financial branches. So someday we'll have to decide if that's something we're going to try and do. Yeah. Do you talk a lot about money with your spouse? We do. But given that I work at Nefi, I think (laughs) I get a lot of, he defers to me a lot. Okay. And that's fine. But knowing what I know, It's open dialogue, right? Even if he trusts me in the direction we take, I always want to feel like he knows all the information that I have. Yeah, absolutely. How would you rate your financial intelligence on a scale of one to 10? Ooh, seven. Seven feels good. That's a good number. Seven and a half. Yeah. It's a C plus. All right. I like it. (laughs) It's passing. It's passing. Yeah, yeah. That's good. It's strong, but I have room to grow. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. Knowing what you know now, what is your biggest money mindset challenge now? My biggest money mindset challenge now is being okay with an uncertain future. As much as you try and save for the future and invest and do all the things that the textbooks say you should do, nothing's ever guaranteed and things are going to change. So just being okay with that ambiguity, I think that it's hard to keep both things, the confidence to keep going in the direction you want to go and knowing like it's not guaranteed. That's a challenging thing. I'm a planner, so it'd be nice to just know what's the finish line. There isn't really one. Everything changes. No, I totally agree. It's funny. I like to know the end of a book before I start it. I want to know where I'm going to end up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a control freak, so <laughs> I want to know. Do they find the missing thing? Do they solve the crime? They get together at the end. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We're at our M&M spot, our sweet spot, money and motivation. I'm wondering if you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that you yourself have used that you could share with our listeners. Sure. So this is different for everybody. I like to check my budgets every day. I do keep a budget, but I like to check in with it every morning. Like I have my coffee and I see what did I spend over the last couple of days? Is it tracking where I want it to? 
you know, they say don't check your retirement account every day. I don't do that. But I check my spending like every day because I think if I wait too long, suddenly it's like, oh, I had that weekend where I did a bunch of activities and I haven't sort of reconciled it. So for me, checking in every day works. I would say check in on the schedule that works for you, but make sure you check in. If it's weekly, if it's monthly, that's fine. For me, it's daily, but checking in is great and set that schedule and stick to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's such an important piece of being intentional and having awareness. And so the more we can look at that stuff, I know some people will say, well, if I have a budget, you're limiting me. And to me, it's Mm -hmm. information. It's resource so that I know where I want to direct my money. Totally. And not necessarily that I'm being limited. So I love that. Well, Amy, we're coming close to the end. I so appreciate what Nefi's out there doing. I love that financial education, financial literacy is the mission because there's so much to learn and there are so many people that just don't have access to this information or they do now, but they don't know where to find it. Mm -hmm. Like we're all with the internet, with online stuff. There's so much more information available, but starting to help people see that how it will benefit them, how it actually will pay dividends in the long run if we can start to educate ourselves, educate our children, and be able to have honest conversations with our spouses and our partners and everybody in between. And that's me being super hopeful. Yes. Where can people find you and find Nefi online and find out just more about Nefi or support Nefi or donate to Nefi? <laughs> no need to donate. We're lucky to be financially independent, but you can find Nefi at nefi.org, N-E-F-E.org. It's where we publish things like the public opinion polls we were talking about today, other research that we funded, as well as updates on all of our initiatives. And we're really active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you want to follow, find Nefi, I think it's at Nefi underscore org on Twitter and then National Endowment for Financial Education on LinkedIn. And you'll find me amongst those places. That's where I spend my time. Well, awesome. Well, Amy, I so appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit of the data and talking about your own money journey. It's all welcomed and appreciated. And we wish you the best and hope Nefi keeps continuing to champion financial literacy. Of course, this was super fun. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Blah, blah, blah.